I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And welcome once again to another edition of I-94, here live on WLPN Chicago. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello, hello. And today we are joined from, I believe, the Los Angeles area uh, by the author of a new book, Chaos. It is a retelling, a history of the Manson family murders. We're going to get into that. We're speaking with Tom O'Neill. Tom, how are you doing this morning? Great. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm great. Are you in uh, Venice, or where are you? Are you still in L.A.? I moved from Venice to Mid-City, Los Angeles. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, Venice, I used to live in Venice, and it can get tiresome, so uh, probably a wise move on your part. <laughs> no, 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 I was forced out by that gentrification. Oh, Snapchat. Snapchat did yeah, it too. Yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. I hear about that. Oh, wait, Snapchat took over Venice? Yes, they moved They did, over, yeah. 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 They wow. did. Not a After Google and before the all the uh, gaming companies, they're just spread out like a virus, and they demolished all the affordable housing there and put up these fancy condos that they sell to 20-year-old billionaires. What's the big street down there? Abbott? Abbott Kinney. Abbott Kinney. Yeah. Yeah. Abbott Kinney, yeah. Yeah, it's got a decent pizza place, but they put salad on their pizza. It's yeah. Of, it's no Connecticut yeah. pizza. It's no, hey, it's no New York Connecticut pizza. Let's be real here. We're par- pizza partisans here in the city of Chicago. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a very oily man roller skating with a boa constrictor. When I was in Venice last time. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a couple boa constrictors out there. Yeah, I think that guy just died, actually. The, the snake guy, I believe he passed away. I think I read... Did he? I think so. I read... I, You know, <laughs> once in a while, I'll look at the beachcomber, because it's online, because, you know, I'm yeah. crazy. And I, I believe I saw he died. He was like some Latvian immigrant, uh, and he, he was passed away in his 70s or something. So we got to like watch out for a boa constrictor on the loose. You absolutely do, especially in <laughs> Latter-day California. Um Tom, thank you so much, first of all, for joining us. And I kind of want to start at the beginning here. Um, It's almost impossible to give a potted history of what your book is about, but I'm going to try. You started out with a magazine commission for a magazine that no longer exists, a magazine called Premier, um, that people of a certain age might remember it. I believe they they actually published a a great many authors. I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken, David Foster Wallace wrote a story about the X-rated film expo. I believe it was from Premiere, and he he did that. Yeah. So they were they were a magazine that was uh, willing to push the boundaries. And they gave They were. Yeah. They gave you a commission to do something on the 30th anniversary of the Manson family murders, which of course took place in 1969 in Los Angeles, California. Um, and I should point out, because Mike mentioned it before the show, this has nothing to do with Marilyn Manson. Uh, it is the Charles Manson, the Manson family killings, the Tate LaBianca murders. You started out in this commission and rapidly, due to your reporting, went down what I think only can be charitably described as a rabbit hole. You discovered inconsistencies in the Several. Uh, the same, the, I guess, the semi-official narrative that was put out by the lead um, prosecuting attorney, Vincent Bugliosi, and that has been kind of handed down in his book, Helter Skelter, which became a true crime classic. Uh, and it went even, even weirder than that. Um, I kind of want to start out, you know, when you were... <sighs> When you were handed this magazine commission in the first place, you know, I used to work in in newspapers and magazines myself. I have to ask, 
when you were handed this commission, didn't you just think this was going to be like an easy 10,000 bucks for 30,000 words? And, and did you have any idea what you were getting into? Yeah. Uh, well, not 30,000 words. I wish then. Uh, we were getting about five to 7,000 words. Oh, which great. Is, yeah. That was, yeah. Um, but no, I had no idea what I was getting into. I knew it wasn't going to be as easy because the story had been written so much. Uh, I thought, what's going to be, you know, what can I find out that's new or interesting or, you know, what was my angle? And that's kind of how the rabbit hole emerged. Uh, Once I found out a couple of new things, then all of a sudden it turned into a life-changing kind of mission to find out what really happened. I was telling Mike before the show there was a new Manson documentary about the music industry, and I was trying to watch it the other And I've been a Manson file since I was in junior high. Um, I'm 49, and that t- made. Do you guys remember that made-for-TV movie of Helter Skelter? Mm-hmm. Oh, I never yeah, saw. Yeah, it. I saw that. I saw that when I was a little kid. It scared the crap out of me. And yeah, but I was watching the documentary, and I watched like 15 minutes of it, and like I know all of this, and I just turned it off. Um, however, mm-hmm. I did not know everything <laughs> that, that uh, you've occur- uncovered. It occurred in your book. I, it was uh, extraordinarily fascinating, and I, I loved the rabbit hole. Um, it, the Especially in regards to the MK Ultra, and one of the, I wanted to ask you, Tom, before we kick it off and really get into the nitty gritty. I've often read that Manson was largely influenced by Dale Carnegie and the works of Scientology, but then other people say he was almost functionally illiterate. So, did there's just- so many contradictions in the history of Manson. That's what I was. I found in his parole records when I got them that he was illiterate. Uh, and people who knew him said he didn't read. Yet uh, Bugliosi and other people put that out there uh, as his background and his reading. Uh, also, Stranger in a Strange Land, which he did reference quite a bit um, prior to him being a public figure, which gives you an idea of what the truth is. Anything that you can find on the record from him, whether it's tape recordings or or whatever literature is out there. Um, I, I think people talk to him about the books they read, and he absorbed it. I do think he was really bright in certain ways, um, but I don't think he could read uh, beyond a uh, fourth or fifth grade level. I, w- I was reading parole records of his in the 50s and uh, early 60s before the crime, you know, the murder crime sprees, and that was repeated uh, that, that he couldn't read. Now, Let's get in. For people that are not familiar with the Manson family killings, and we, we kind of forget about this, it, it was, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we should maybe provide the Bugliosi version, what came out. Right. Walter's so the, the, the official Bugliosi version, just again, a, a potted history, was that Charles Manson's family murdered uh, Sharon Tate, who was a, a starlet married to the film director Roma Polanski. Uh, and, and a number of other people at uh, at their house. Yellow Drive. Drive. Yeah. yeah. They also committed um, other murders that were connected to it. And, and Bobby Beausoleil, uh, you know, he was tried separately, as you note. But he also killed uh, somebody else in relation to this. So there was, there was three. Gary s- Hinman. Gary Hinman. So there were three separate killings that were related and tied ultimately to the Manson family. And, and the official story was that... Um, in a way, and I, I hope I'm not oversimplifying this, but the way Bugliosi spun it was almost that, you know, this was a, a crazed hippie cult that was going around killing people. And the, the larger metaphor was that these dangerous hippie radicals were 
poisonous to society. And the, the Manson family was just a manifestation of just how horrible the left was. Uh, you know, they were running a, you know, Manson was apparently a, a Svengali that was running, uh, had all these runaway girls and large amounts of narcotics and guns. And he wanted to start a race war uh, called Helter Skelter that he thought would, would change the United States. As you point out in your book, some of this might be true, but some of it actually doesn't add up when you started looking at the facts. And one of the let's just kind of start there, because when you started, you start off in the book talking to Bugliosi and you start finding some inconsistencies and you start realizing that some of the things that you would think would be obvious to a district attorney or to a policeman somehow are not part of the record or were not brought up. What was kind of your first inkling that maybe the official story about the Manson family wasn't the way that Bugliosi, who was a very self-aggrandizing person, uh, put it in his book? That's an understatement. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I think the very first kind of clue were inconsistencies in the story of Terry Melcher's involvement with the Manson family. Uh, Terry Melcher was uh, the, the son of Doris Day, who, you know, at one time in the 50s through the early 60s was the number one film star in America. And uh, he was the golden child of Beverly Hills, who was actually a, a talented record producer. Uh, at a very young age, he was producing The Birds and composing songs with John Phillips of, of The Mamas and the Papas. And he was in that world in, in the early 20s. He's the only American to get a record-producing deal with the Beatles on Apple. Um, so he was really at the top of his game when he met Manson. And in the official version that Bugliosi present, presented at trial, which is, is most important because, you know, people are under oath, including Melcher, and uh, this is, uh, you, you know, the stakes here were the life sentences or, or the death penalty for, for five, four people in, in the first trial. Um, and he, he, Melcher kind of, with Bugliosi's help, I found out, erased a lot of his history and involvement with the group. They needed Melcher, the prosecution needed Melcher to have a reason for Manson selecting the house where Sharon Tate lived and was killed because Melcher had been the prior occupant and had left about a year before the murders. And what you see in the book, it's real complicated to get into now, was that um, the official version is uh, the Manson family, or Charles Manson, had no idea who would be in the house. He just wanted to have the occupants killed because of what it represented. And part of what it represented was uh, this history of, of rejection in Manson's life. Uh, Melcher had rejected him for a record deal. And uh, on tri- at trial, Melcher said he met him once or twice, briefly auditioned him informally at the ranch, was very polite to him, and said, Charlie, I just, you know, I think you should do this, that, or the other thing, but uh, I don't think I'm right for you. And that was that, and it was a clean break. But in reality, what I found out was uh, Melcher was much more involved with him, had the family, members of the family living with him at that same house which would have been very important, and Bugliosi had to cover that up because he was protecting Melcher and also ensuring that his other motive of helter-skelter race war would be the prominent one. Uh, I think most sensationally I found out that not only did they lie about this, but Melcher had a relationship with the family 
after the murders, including visiting them and and having these dramatic encounters with which with Manson that I found in the police records, it seemed to indicate he knew that the murder that they had committed the murders, and this is when nobody knew who did it, and the whole city was in lockdown and living in, in fear for about three months. Melcher was going out to see them. So if you read the book and you get the whole context, it'll make a lot more sense. But that was the first kind of chip in the armor that uh, started cracking yeah. everything apart. And yet, no one is willing to go on the record for it, even though it was like torture reading some of the, the stuff you found but weren't able to really bring to light with any kind of uh, corroborating witnesses yeah, or yeah. evidence. And, and, I mean, I did, as much as I could, I would confront people, including Melcher, who threatened to throw my briefcase off of his roof where we had this rooftop meeting and then you know, threatened me with an army of lawyers that he'd sue me if I published his stuff, and then in the same breath asked me uh, to write his memoirs with him and forget my magazine story. That kind of thing happened again and again and again. People well, tried to buy me off or threaten me. You made it. You made it clear in the book, and I want listeners to know that if what you found in your reporting were were published and, and were true, Vincent Bugliosi, who who made millions off a of Helter Skelter, is a might still be the best-selling true crime book I believe it out is, there. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and uh, he would be guilty of suborning perjury, which means he would be on the line for the highest penalty that hit the defendants were on the line for, which is the death exactly. penalty. Right. So right. The stakes are about as high as it gets, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. you know it makes it sounds crazy when you start explaining it to other people how massive the cover-up might be, but I mean, when you think about the stakes, it's not really out of the realm of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going back even further, Tom, you, you unearthed that Manson's parole folks were extraordinarily lenient on and considering some of the, th- you know, he came from... That's a, an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> he came from a, 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 a criminal background and, you know, he would get caught and... Wasn't he caught with a gun? He was caught with a gun and underage girl. Yeah, uh, absolutely clear violations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when the police picked up, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but banana clips from a machine gun at the Spawn Ranch, uh, he called up the sheriff, the local sheriff's station, and says, those are my uh, banana clips. I want them back. And this is a guy who's on federal parole who's not allowed to be anywhere near guns. Yeah. Not, that was a, a carbine. He got he him, gave right? him back, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he got everything back. So, and let's dip into this because that is another thing you start bringing up, which is that not only, as Jeremy put it, were, were the parole officers suspiciously hands off with this guy, but also part of the official Los Angeles Police Department. Yeah. What's going on there? Well, you know, again, I, I hate to make blanket statements th- throughout the book. I just try to present the evidence I found, and then if somebody else says something and they're in a position of authority and knowledge, I use that. So the best I can say is what was going on there was I took all the evidence of the leniency that was displayed towards Manson for the two years prior to him ordering these murders, and I laid them all out to this retired deputy DA, or actually the head DA of, of Van Nuys, who later became a judge, who looked at everything I, I sent to him, and he just started saying, chicken blank, chicken blank, this is all chicken blank. Yeah. Uh, he goes, this guy was working for somebody. He goes, sometimes this can be explained by incompetence, 
but this was a clearly deleb- deliberate catch and release. They didn't. They wanted him out. He was more important outside than inside, meaning outside jail than inside jail. And I said, well, they, who's they? More important in, in what capacity? He goes, well, that's what you've got to find out. That's your job. You're the journalist. I can just tell you that this guy was working for somebody. It could have been the federal government. It could have been local law enforcement. But he was an informant of some type. Well, let's stop right there. Uh, we, as always on this show, have a couple readings from Tom's book. That, as always, they are read by Shanna Van Volt. Today, music is from Jamie Branch with Tamika Reed. Uh, I've we've prepared three selections, Tom, and actually the first selection you're going to hear uh, is when you ask who Reeve Whitson was, and you mentioned that you know you could have filed your piece to Premier and you could have done this. So I, I thought this was a nice natural break. So we're going to take about two minutes. We're going to listen to some of Tom's uh, writing again. We're speaking today with Tom O'Neill. He is the author of the book Chaos. It's a story of the Manson family, the 1960s, the CIA, and much more. And we'll be back after we play this little segment from Chaos. Fairly early in my reporting, I knew I could have wrapped up my premiere story if I really wanted to. I had the guts of a great piece, even if it was too late for the milestone 30th anniversary of the murders. I'd spoken to duplicitous celebrities, seedy drug dealers, bumbling cops, and spurious prosecutors. I'd been threatened and cajoled and warned off my investigation. But I didn't have a smoking gun. There were only mountains of circumstantial evidence. The thrust of my story was still mired in ambiguity. I worried that my reporting could be too easily dismissed, Lee Baca style, as quote-unquote Hollywood fluff. So I kept going, although in many ways I've come to regret it. A few of my interviews were especially tormenting, the ones that convinced me I couldn't call it quits yet. I thought of Little Joe, J.C. Brings Barber, who received an elliptical phone call from a mobster after the murders, and of the first suspects, Charles Tackett and Billy Doyle, who claimed to have intelligence connections, and of Preston Guillory, who alleged that police allowed Manson to remain free because they knew he planned to attack the Black Panthers. I thought most of all about the possibility that Manson, of all people, had some type of protection from law enforcement or was even an informant. It boggled the mind even to speculate that someone like Manson could be plugged into something bigger and presumably even darker than he was. But this is where the reporting took me. I started reading up on the use of informants, perusing old editions of the two major Los Angeles papers of the era, The Time and The Herald Examiner. I learned that in the mid-60s, both the LAPD and the LASO had infiltrated groups they considered a threat to the status quo, anti-war leftists, the Black Panther Party, and other black militant groups like the U.S. organization, a fierce rival of the Panthers in Los Angeles. Posing as leftists, agent provocateurs would gain the trust of these groups from the inside, provoking them to commit crimes or do violence against rivals. Even from a distance, this line of inquiry gave me pause. I'd never been interested in conspiracies. I wasn't one to speculate about a second shooter in JFK's assassination or faking the moon landing. For the first time, though, I saw the appeal of trafficking in murky secrets. It was an attractive option as long as people believed you. If I found the plot, I could change the way people understood one of the seminal crimes and criminals of the 20th century. If I got it wrong, or I took too much on faith, I'd become someone who made people glaze over at parties, politely excusing themselves as I droned on about the big picture. Even if it made me look crazy, I wanted to see whether the informant theory held water, if Manson had any credible connections to the government or law enforcement, and if I could link him to the police infiltrations of leftist groups I'd read about. Then, as if I'd conjured him from thin air, someone emerged who fit the puzzle. He seemed to have wandered into Southern California from the pages of a spy novel, and not a very well-written one at that. 
His name was Reeve Whitson, and his intersections with the Manson investigation suggested a dimension to the Tate-LaBianca murders that had been wiped from the official record. And we are back. You are listening to I-94. That was a selection from Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos. And it's a particularly interesting one because it is, I think, an important chapter in your book where you know... Excuse me, I just want to interrupt. That was wonderful. I've never heard uh, my book read like that, you know... She was great. And the music was fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. That is uh, that's our secret weapon, uh, Shanna Van Volt. <laughs> thank she you, is Shanna. The, thank you, Shanna. She is the fourth member of I ninety four. She does all this stuff in the background. And, oh, uh, if I do the uh, new version of the audio book. I want her, and I love the musician in the background. Okay, too. well, <laughs> I'll let her know. I mean, she's listening to the show. I'm sure, so she'll probably be now hiding under the couch at uh, <laughs> <laughs> this kind of recognition. She's very shy, but she's a wonderful reader. She yeah, is she's a wonderful yeah, reader. That was fantastic. And Tom, we'll send you the tape of it so you can have this at the end Thank of the show, you. too. But this is a seminal uh, port, a point in your book because, first of all, we get these uh, an interesting and mysterious figure who I think you very, um, at least to me, convincingly make the case that this was a CIA operative who bizarrely uh, was working on the Manson family case. And I think what is implied is that his attention to this case is important for two reasons. The first being that the FBI and the CIA, of course, had a longstanding program in the 1960s to destabilize leftist organizations. They were paranoid about the Black Panthers, who, of course, uh, Charles Manson railed against. Uh, But moreover... uh, this almost has the feel, and you don't say this, and I'm, I'm. This is my own interpretation. He comes off almost as a handler, you know, somebody that handles informants and people who worked in the intelligence community. So, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, how it felt when this kind of sideswipe came in your reporting, and and a little bit about who this person was? Yeah, he was, like you said, a, a mystery. Uh, he. I heard about him first from a couple people who were used as critical witnesses at trial who said that he would come to them before the police or the prosecution and have knowledge about what they knew about the case or the murders or something like that. And they never knew who he was, who he worked for, except that he was often accompanied by uh, General Curtis LeMay, bombs away LeMay. from um, Yeah. You know. And uh, he was some type of military intelligence guy. Uh, and he also was working with Colonel Paul Tate, who was Sharon Tate's father, uh, who was also a military intelligence, who was conducting his own investigation. Um, so at first I looked very askance at it because I hadn't heard of him. Or, or you know, There wasn't much Google at the time, or I didn't know how to use it in 99. But uh, for a couple of years I kind of kept it on a back burner. But when all of a sudden I started seeing his name in the trial transcripts and confirming that he was involved in this, then I started looking into the possibility that he had been involved with the Manson family prior to the murders, which a few people told me he had said. And then I got uh, to his close. He was dead. He had died in the uh, early 90s, a couple Even years ago. his before death was I a mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first I found his daughter and his ex-wife, and they were both in Sweden, and they told me that he was a CIA agent, and uh, the, the wife told me she was a model who married him in New York in the early 60s and had their daughter Lisa, that um, they lived in, uh, in Sweden, where her hometown, and that she and he constantly fought because he had all these 
communists and Russians and, and, and Soviets coming into the house and socializing with them, and then he would tell her, no, this is my work, you know, I'm infiltrating them. Ultimately, when um, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, Reeve knew what was going to happen before it happened, and he, he, they had come back to the United States. He divorced her then and moved the family to Sweden, paid you know, finance them for years, but never saw them again because he said, "You're my only vulnerability. Uh, if uh, if anyone wants to get to me, they'll kill you." So um, they had never seen him again, and the daughter had never met him since she was a year or two old until the year before he died. And during his last year of his life, he told people in his family and his attorney and a couple of his closest friends that his dying regret was he could have prevented the murder of Sharon Tate, but hadn't. And he, he had worked in some capacity undercover, infiltrating the Manson family. And he, he said that not only did he know the murders were going to happen, but that he was at the crime scene after the murders had been committed, but before the police arrived. So that's the kind of Reeve Whitson in a nutshell. I, you know, did every Freedom of Information Request Act I could to the CIA, to the FBI, to everything, and I got the same response from everyone. We can neither confirm nor deny. Which so, is a way um, of, that's about, uh, just, and you note in the book, that is the way the CIA usually sort of confirms that they worked for them. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. one of the... The general manager of the L.A. Lakers and former NBA baller, and his name's escaped me, also verified that he said he was a CIA agent, correct? It with a right, f- right. Now I forget his name. Uh, Jerry Buss, was it? No, it wasn't Buss. Was it, it Jerry West? No, 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 no. Before that, I uh, just, we're, we're talking 60s. I forget, okay. I forget the name. Yeah, oh, the, it's uh, Bill Sharman. I just pulled oh, it Bill up. Oh, Bill Sharman, yes. Right, yes. thank you. Yeah, I should have remembered that. I was thinking of the crazy bus family. Um, yeah, but, they're nuts. There's so, there's yeah. so much to remember from this book. And uh, there's so many characters. I don't blame you for not remembering uh, somebody's uh, name. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, and this is a you know we're actually coming up to our, our break here. It's it, this this interview's flown by, uh, but before we get there, I, I do have to ask you, and, and we want to pick this up after the break. But this book kind of this the story has overtaken your life. Are you still working on this story right now? I mean, even though the book's out, or have you been able to kind of put it to the side? I'm trying so hard to put it to the side <laughs> and. The book came out in, well, we finished it in March, but, you know, from March to June, we were still doing final changes and, and whatnot, and then we got a lot of press. I haven't actually done an interview for a week or two, which is the longest stretch of time since the book came out that I haven't really talked about it, and you guys are giving me all kinds of PTSD, because <laughs> I, I, just hearing that reading, I was like right back in there in that scene, and I started thinking, oh, my God, I've got to call. I have, like, lists of people that I want to call and double back to. And I've gotten, you know, I'll get 10 emails or phone calls a day from people with information since the book came out. And out of those 10 a day, maybe one every third day is something I, I follow up on. And out of those, maybe one every month is something important. So I, I've been talking to my co-author because I would not do a, a follow-up book unless he did it with me because he saved my life, came in at the last 
last couple of years when I had just really lost it and couldn't see the forest for the trees, didn't know what was important and what wasn't. Is it Pippenberg? Uh, Dan Pippenberg? Dan Pippenberg, yeah. yeah. Who's right now got a bestseller out because he also did the same thing with another guy. What was his name? Uh, Prince. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that yeah guy. he's a co-author of the beautiful... He was working with Prince when Prince died. Oh, was, actually that, because, was that yeah. Prince's autobiography? Yeah, yeah. And actually, oh. because, because Prince died, I was gifted with Dan, because once Prince died, they... Um, uh, the, the state just put a lockdown on everything that was in development. So all of a sudden, Dan had a book that he had actually been traveling with Prince for about two or three months, beginning the book. He has great stories. A lot of them are in the book, but I've got better ones. But, I don't <laughs> know but anyway, um, because of that, he had a couple years. He had no idea how much time, but they knew it was going to be at least a couple years. And my agent worked with his agent. They were in the same agency. And he, he's just the perfect Tom Whisperer or Prince Whisperer. He just knows how to take your thoughts and, 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 and your work and really help you assemble it and make it cohesive. So he and I have discussed doing a follow-up to the book because not just new information that's come since then, but there's lots of stuff. We Believe it or not, it's a thick book, and we fought to get about an extra 200. It was only supposed to be about 300 pages, and now it's more than 500, I think. Yep. Uh, and we fought for that, uh, and we still kept out chapters, you know, on Sirhan and, and the RFK assassination and a whole lot of other stuff. So I, I, I still compile stuff. I keep thinking I just... After the holidays, I might go away for a month or two because I haven't really taken a long vacation and go to some exotic place and think. And I'd love to try writing some fiction just to cleanse my my get, head. Get away from that whiteboard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then and, and then maybe then maybe come back come back to the subject. I'm not sure. Well, we're going to take a quick break right now. Tom, we're also going, uh, after the break, by the way, you'll hear the sting, but uh, we're actually going to jump to Chapter 8, where uh, you talk about the fact that the DA that you you talked to um, thinks that detectives uh, in the case were, as they put it, lying through their teeth. So that was going to come immediately after the break. We're talking with Tom O'Neill. He is the author of Chaos. Tom, you're not going anywhere, right? we got another half hour. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Beautiful. All right. We'll be right back with Tom after the break. You are listening to I-94 here on Lumpin' Radio. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. When it came to prosecuting the Manson family, the Los Angeles DA's office left nothing to chance. I'd already seen that Vincent Bugliosi had no problem getting his witnesses to lie on the stand, and that Deputy DA Buck Compton gathered intelligence on subversives and militants. What I found next was evidence of more pervasive, top-down interference by the DA's office, which took extraordinary measures to control and likely in part to fabricate the story of the Manson murders. The first signs of misconduct came during the trial of Bobby Beausoleil. He was accused of murdering Gary Hinman, the musician who'd been found stabbed to death just days before the Tate-LaBianca murders. For reasons never disclosed by Bugliosi, the DA's office tried Beausoleil separately from the rest of the family. As I suggested earlier, it made sense to try all three of the murder cases together, Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca. Law enforcement had connected the crimes. 
Uniting them under a single trial would have made it easier to convict Manson of conspiracy since he'd helped torture Hinman and had ordered all three sets of slaughters. And yet they kept the cases separate. I thought I knew why. If they'd thrown Hinman in with Tate LaBianca, the resulting testimony would have revealed that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, LASO, knew as early as August 10th that the Manson family was responsible for all the murders. Remember, LASO detectives Charles Gunther and Paul Whiteley broke the Tate case when a recorded phone call from one of Hinman's murderers, Beausoleil, clued them into a link with the Tate murders. The only way to hide this early break was to try the Hinman murder case separately. Beausoleil went to trial on November 12, 1969. The prosecutor was Ronald Ross, the deputy DA in Santa Monica, who confirmed to me that the case had been tried separately under very suspicious circumstances. He had orders, he said, to keep Charles Manson and the family out of the trial. That meant that scoring a conviction against Beausoleil would be an uphill battle since, after all, without Manson's instructions, he may never have murdered Hinman. Still, Ross felt he had no choice but to obey. My hands were tied, he told me. When we first spoke in 2000, he'd recently retired after 30 years in the DA's office, and the case sounded fresh in his mind, he remembered. The orders from on high, don't mention the name of Manson or these other people. Ross later learned that his superiors at the DA's office and his own investigating detectives, Gunther and Whiteley, had withheld all evidence related to the Manson family from him to keep their secret. I was pissed when I learned later that they had other evidence, Ross said. I was closed out of the thing. I really don't know why they did that. He could still recall the day the case first landed on his desk in early September 1969. He was just back from a vacation. The horrors of the Tate-LaBianca murders, then only a month old, still dominated the news. The killers remained at large and no one even knew who they were. Ross was struck by reports that they left the bloody word pig in conspicuous areas of both the Tate and LaBianca homes. His Hidman murder scene featured such writing too. He took one look at the case and immediately connected it to the unsolved Tate-LaBianca murders. You'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to, he said. He called in Gunther and Whiteley to ask them about it, and they said, Oh, no, no, it's not related. No, we, we can't find any connection between the two. He still sounded bruised when he added, Now I think they were lying through their teeth. Gunther denied the allegation to me, but I found it believable, given what he told me about his investigation. And if it's true, it shows that by September 1969, he and Whiteley were conspiring to hide what they'd learn about the Manson family's role in the murders. Yeah, the howling in the background of that one. Welcome back to I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And I'm joined by Michael Sack. Hello. And you just heard a reading from Tom O'Neill's Chaos. We are speaking with him live from Midtown Los Angeles. Tom, that uh, that's another seminal point in the book where, again, a, a, as you mentioned, uh, it becomes pretty clear that uh, at least some of the key investigators uh, were covering up a great deal of what was going on with Charles Manson and the Manson family. One of the interesting things that uh, that then happens, I think, is the, as I think you've mentioned, is this kind of stonewalling about this because the stakes, as I think Mike has pointed out, if it came out that uh, a lot of the official story was untrue, some of these convictions might collapse and Vincent Bugliosi himself would be up for perjury. How were you, were you shocked by this? I mean, or did you have an inkling that once things started to go down the rabbit hole, as we've called it, that other stuff was going to crop up? 
that score really captured what was going on in my head. <laughs> That's uh, what I it, said, man. Yeah, we were thinking that. I was, <laughs> I was bouncing back and forth between the, the three people that she was uh, describing there and about six or seven others, and they're all telling me contradictory accounts of what happened and that the other was lying and not them. And each of those are, you know, sworn law enforcement um, officials, either uh, detectives or district attorneys, and it was just making me crazy because I'd grown up to respect these people, and clearly somebody was lying and not telling the truth, and eventually you find out that uh, the paper record, the contemporaneous paper record, showed that they were all covering up, not all of them, but the majority of them were covering up the fact that law enforcement knew who did the murders much sooner um, than they ever were held accountable for, and that these guys were at large, and <clears throat> when they didn't need to be, and you talk about um, the three known murders, the, the Hinman murder, the Tate murders, and the LaBianca murders, but there was a fourth, uh, Shorty Shea, who was a ranch hand, right. who was killed um, about the third week of August and um, hidden at the Spawn Ranch. His body wasn't discovered until one of the imprisoned Manson families finally told the sheriffs where it was. Uh, and um, that guy definitely would have been, wouldn't have been killed had they been taken... They actually were taken into custody on August 16th, the whole group, for a separate uh, investigation. Uh, stolen autos, drugs, underage girls, runaways. Manson and 20-some of his followers were all arrested in what was then the, the biggest raid in the history of the state of California, a uh, law enforcement raid that took three weeks, four weeks to organize in top secret and released two days later without charges. And my allegation in the book is that it wasn't done for the other reasons, but they were collecting information on, on the murder case. Um, and they had to keep them out there for, uh, I'll let the readers find out what I suggest, because again, I don't want to say anything definitively, but I think most readers come to the same conclusion that Lewis Watnick, that DA did, was they were more important outside than inside at that time and for what Manson wanted to do and was doing. Um, but what was going on in my head at that time was I just couldn't, I was trying to figure out whether I was going crazy or whether it was true that this, you know, such a notorious, you know, kind of culture-shifting crime was not the crime that, you know, we had been told to believe historically. So, yeah, that that made me question everything and and uh it also compelled me to push harder and harder against these people to try to get the truth uh and that's when you would get an interview with like ron ross who was one of the honest ones who, who said they you know they lied to me through their teeth and lewis watnick the one who said these guys, everybody's not telling you the truth they wanted manson out there and even stephen k the pro co-prosecutor of Bugliosi in the book you know, he didn't want to believe anything that contradicted the official version. Stephen Kay, after the trials, after the convictions, you know, uh, five people were, or seven people were sentenced to death for the short Ishe and him and murders as well. And all those death penalties were overturned by the state Supreme Court when the death penalty was thrown out in, uh, in the early 70s. So they were all commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole. So for, I think, 20 or 30, no, about 25 years, Stephen Kay represented the state at something like 100 parole hearings, because they would come up for parole depending on their 
which one they were, every two to five years. So there were seven people. And he would have to go and present the evidence at every one of those. So he got to know, not only did he, you know, work with Bugliosi on the main trial, but also he did the Tex Watson trial, which was after. He knew the case as well, or better than Bugliosi, after 25 years. And I was interviewing him extensively, and when I finally had my big meeting with him in 2005 and presented him with all this evidence that contradicted basically the main thrust of, of what they presented for the motive at the murder trials and in all those parole hearings, before I showed him the documents, he said, you'll never get me to believe any of this. I know this better than anyone. I know it inside out. You're really wasting your time, but because you know we've been doing this so long, I'll look at your stuff. At the end of that meeting, he sunk in his chair and was shaking his head, and he goes, I don't know what to believe anymore about this. I thought I knew everything, and what I was showing was a bunch of Vince's notes, Bugliosi's notes, that had a whole different account of Melcher and Manson and all that. All the lines crossed out? Yeah, yeah, and he said, if Vince lied about this, and he said, clearly this is Vince's handwriting, he goes, what else did he lie about? What can we believe? And that kind of summarizes my whole, you know, perspective on the case at that point. I had to stop believing anything I knew, and that was 2005, so I still had another 10. I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was almost finished. I had another 10 years of trying to figure out, all right, if he's saying that, then what? we can't believe anything. We have to throw everything out and look at it with fresh eyes, and that's the hard part. Tom, I wanted to mention one thing, and then I have a question for you. I, I know Manson was also possibly tied in with the murder of a big papa who was a drug dealer that was his nickname his actual name lots of papa lots of papa lots of papa and yeah yeah his name's escaping me bernard crow that's right and the other this thing cast is huge by the way if yes, you haven't figured yeah, yeah. this out guys mama cass elliott's in there yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's, everybody's it's in Every, there everybody's in this book but well, another thing i want to just mention too is you know manson's always called a serial killer and he's not a textbook definition of a serial killer right, right. i just want to say that but sure. my, the last question i wanted to add, and i'm not directing that at you i'm directing that i just watched that documentary and they kept calling a serial killer i'm like yelling at the tv he's not a serial killer yeah yeah they do it all the time yeah at any rate uh Let's talk about Bugliosi for a minute. Um, at first, you had a working relationship with, with him. Isn't that correct? Sure, yeah. I thought you know he was going to be the protagonist of my magazine story because he gave me access to him and his life. I spent a whole day with him, and he was wonderful. You know, He welcomed me into his home in Pasadena. They, we talked for hours at the house. We went out to lunch. He gave me a tour of some of the crime scenes. We went back to his house, and uh, again, I don't want to spoil things for the readers, but he did tell me one thing that day when I really pushed him, which was also one of the openings into the unofficial version that I think he regretted after he told me that, because it came back to haunt him. And um, after, after that meeting, we were talking on the phone for the next couple of weeks, a couple times a week, and I started asking the questions about Melcher and, and, and other stuff. And, you know, I've been a journalist for, I don't know, 15 years at that point, and I'd begun as an entertainment journalist, which is, I wouldn't want to compare it to this kind of reporting, but when you're interviewing big movie stars and stuff and you're trying to get them to talk about stuff they don't want to talk about, that was good training for me with these guys. Uh, and I'd done one true crime story prior to it. You can tell when people are 
don't want to tell you something or, or admitting stuff. And again, to make a long story short, within about three or four months, I found out he was tracking my reporting, speaking to people after I spoke to them, uh, and then getting really, really uh, aggressive with me about what are you doing and what are you really looking at. And then things got really crazy five or six years later when we had a big confrontational meeting at his house when I did the same thing I did with Steve Kay was where I, I just threw everything at him and that was a lot different uh, than the meeting seven years earlier um, it ended with him screaming and yelling and cursing at me and threatening me and you know that's how that's uh, how the, the book starts out right the prologue is is that is that last meeting right it begins and, with that big yeah the big confrontation then it kind of ends with it too well, one of the I details i noticed more. about that that first scene is is uh bugliosi's wife the the way Gail. you described her and 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 her behavior and uh seemed like she'd heard it all before and maybe she maybe she thought some of it was bs not really sure um but bugliosi passed away in 2015 have did you keep in touch with his family at all? Uh, interesting you asked. Number one, that was, I just want to put it out there. A lot of my critics, because there are people who really want to attack the book and me and, and my methods, they think that the reason the book took so long was I put it on a shelf and waited until he died, which is the furthest thing from the truth in the world. Uh, I really wanted him to be alive when the book came out to be accountable to all this. Uh, his wife, Gail... I don't even know if I should tip this off, but um, I know that she knows the truth about all this stuff. Um, I've never heard from her since. I felt that she was sympathetic to my cause. Yeah. Uh, and when people read the book, they'll see what kind of a life she had with Sense, which was not very pleasant, let's put it that yeah. way. I have debated getting in touch with her and seeing whether or not she wants to sit down and have a conversation with me. I have no idea if she'd do that or not. I did get a lot of weird threats from somebody claiming to be uh, some part of Vince's inner circle when the book came out, and some of them were really specifically life-threatening. Yeah, well, I'm outside your house right now if you don't stop doing these public appearances or saying this or that. And yes. I mean, it was actually so blatant. It was so much like Vince. I thought he'd come back to life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I did know that the person did have some kind of affiliation with him. But I th also decided it was like a nephew or a grandkid of him or who kn knows who, because you could tell they were really juvenile kind of threats. Yeah. And you know, I saved everything. It was all online, and uh, I didn't engage too much, but I kind of wanted to keep track of where the person was because I was a little worried. I mean, I've been threatened for 20 years, but the only threats I was ever, I mean, I was threatened by Manson family members, but the only threats I was ever really concerned about were the, were the ones from Vince uh, when he was alive. Tom, a quick personal curiosity question about the photos. There, one, I was wondering if there were more that just couldn't be printed because, you know, it, it cost the publisher more money. Uh, oh, it, it didn't cost the publisher a cent. It cost me. I had to pay for the rights for all those Ooh, pictures. Yikes. Ouch. Well, yeah, I guess they would have had to pay for the paper, but yeah, uh, but, I paid for all those photos. But the the photos of you are accredited to Errol Morris, the, uh, the yeah. filmmaker and author. I was wondering, is, did he profile you, or were you buddies? Or Oh, yeah, that's... No, uh, when the book deal fell apart, uh, the, uh, my first book publisher gave me a very handsome advance, 
and then grew impatient, maybe understandably, mm. and then canceled the deal in 2012 and um, sued me for the return of the advance, which kind of crippled me for a couple of years financially, emotionally. During that period, we couldn't take the book out and resell it, and I never knew if I'd be able to resell it after it was um, canceled by a prominent publisher. And Errol Morris uh, came to me because he knew about the project from some earlier stuff. So he and I uh, signed a contract to do a, a dramatic, uh, what do you call it, a TV series, a, limited, a streaming limited series. Together like you did with Wormwood. Well, actually, that was my project. So, oh. I mean, it's not a secret, I don't think. Uh, I, I mentioned it in the book, but I don't mention Wormwood. But um, what Errol was doing was he was doing a six-hour documentary on me. He shot me for two days with a huge film crew at my apartment in Venice and in a studio and created what they call a teaser reel, sold it to Netflix. And it was going to be about MK Ultra, Manson, everything in my book. And then he and I had a creative differences and... I had a clause in the contract where if we hadn't done principal shooting, I could back out at any point. And I backed out after about nine months uh, of development, and I was broke. I was getting sued. I was getting evicted, and I was walking away from, you know, substantial money that would have kept me afloat. Uh, and also, you know, a, a film by uh, somebody who I admit is, I think, one of the greatest documentarians of our time. Agree. But totally. we just had this fundamental difference. So he took an aspect of the MK Ultra story, which was the Frank Olson, Eric oh. Olson story. I was the one who introduced him to Eric and told Eric really? to do it with him. When, yeah, yeah. So um, I pulled out, and then Eric, he did the Eric and Frank story instead. And um, we didn't end on great terms because he really, really wanted to do it, and he was pissed off that he had put all that effort into it. But he also knew that I was what I was, I had to. If I did, if I sacrificed that much, that, that meant something to me. So he respected it, and I didn't think when we published the book, when I reached out to him, that he'd let me use. I knew he had this library of photos from the shoot, and he very graciously and generously said, "Use whatever you want. I'll send you what I think are my best." He goes, "I just want an advanced copy, and I'm not going to charge you a nickel." Oh, that's, that's nice. nice. So, so yeah, so I, I'm happy with Errol again, and I, I actually loved Wormwood. Me yeah. too, me too. Yeah, yeah stuff. it was fantastic. We, Tom, we only have a couple minutes because we do want to, on this show, we like to close and give you the last word. And, in fact, the last word is you are telling of what happened with Penguin and, and how the book came out from Little Brown and Company. But before we leave, uh, you know, something I think we've, we've been dancing around, do you regret uh, taking on this project given that it took over your life for, what, almost 20 years, 15, 20 years? Do you, is this something that you look back upon and you say, boy, I really wish I'd never signed up to do this Premier Magazine article? Every single day, and then every other day, <laughs> I'm so happy I did it. So I go back and forth. It's uh, the unending question. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I'm really, I mean, I had a lot of support from family and friends and, and some people in publishing and my agent who stood by me for 20 years who really never lost faith. So I can't tell you how much joy I brought to them because they it shows that they had faith in the right project and especially for my family who financially supported me when I needed it. And unfortunately, my father, who, who was a huge help, not just financially, but also he was an attorney, and he helped me with all of my Freedom of Information Act requests, which we did get some results. 
Uh, he died before the book came out, and that was oh, really, no. you know, I wish he could have been around for it, but my 93-year-old mother was at the bookstore the day, Barnes & Noble, the, the, <laughs> the day the book came out, the, the, the minute the doors opened, and she went right up and made them place the book at the top of the stack. <laughs> they <laughs> put great. Tom Clancy behind it and had pictures by, by the staff taken of her holding the book in front of the That's display great. there. <laughs> well, we've been speaking to you with Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s is out now from Little Brown and Company. Tom, thank you so Thanks. much Thanks, Tom. Been a pleasure. for speaking Thanks. with this us. This has been the best radio interview I've ever done. I oh. love your production. Well, thank you, thank guys. You so much. Very kind of you. Hey, this is our last show also for 2019, so we'll see you all happy in New 2020. Year, Tom, happy holidays. Thanks so much. You too. You too. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. And now my book was even more overdue than my article to premiere had ever been. Penguin had granted me extension after extension, improving another advance payment to me to keep me afloat. In the meantime, my editor had left the house, and the 2008 recession had editorial departments tightening their belts. Author contracts had once come with implicit latitude. Now, with lots of money on the line, editors wanted something to show for their investments, especially when an untested writer had received a significant advance. The 40th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders came and went. It had now been 10 years since my report for premiere was supposed to appear. The magazine didn't even exist anymore. On cable news, my fellow reporters and dozens of my interview subjects showed up as talking heads, discussing the continuing significance of the murders. There was Bugliosi still hawking helter-skelter, calling the crimes revolutionary, political. I fumbled and fiddled, trying to find a workable structure for the book. Should it begin with MK Ultra, The Night of the Tate Murders? No matter where I dropped in, I tripped myself up with parentheticals and long digressions. There was no starting point that didn't entail a Herculean amount of exposition. I sent in outlines, synopses, addenda, half-starts, revised proposals. None of them hit the mark, and I knew that. I'd come to feel like a prisoner of my own story. Everyone agreed that it would make for an outstanding book. No one, least of all me, could describe what that book might look like, or how it would accommodate a plot that had no end. By 2011, I'd taken so long to deliver that my original editor had come back to Penguin. He proposed bringing on a collaborator, someone who could metabolize my reporting into a cogent narrative. I was all for it. Penguin helped me find an ideal candidate, a journalist with decades of political reporting and many books under his belt, someone with experience and sangfroid. When he signed on, I felt like I could see a lifeboat on the horizon. He wrote yet another synopsis, one that yielded the first unabashedly positive note from Penguin I'd gotten in years. We find this very encouraging, full speed ahead. That was October 2011. By December, he'd quit. Our deadline, the last one, was only six months away and now I was flying solo. After he walked, Penguin offered to buy me out. If I let someone else write the book completely, I'd receive no more money, no credit, no input, nothing. All I'd get was a portion of the advance I'd already received and spent years before on nothing but reporting the book. I told my agent to tell him to go to hell. I decided to use those remaining six months to write the book myself. Before he'd even seen my manuscript, my editor warned that there was only one in a million chance they wouldn't reject it. I typed out pages in furious haste. I tried to be thorough, to be linear. I wrote in the first person, hoping to give readers a sense of what I had been thinking. And in June 2012, I turned in what I had, 129 pages, single space, amounting to 117,228 words. It covered barely the first three months of my reporting. If you've inspected the spine of this book, you've already noticed that the Penguin Press, Colophon, isn't on it. They canceled the book. 
I'd like to believe my editor was sorry it came to this, that he believed in the project. I don't believe Penguin's lawyers shared his sorrow. They wanted their money back. If I didn't pay up by the start of 2013, they would have no choice but to sue me. I didn't have that money, of course. I'd been living on it as the publisher had intended me to for years. A few months earlier, I'd been hoping to repay my parents for their loan. Now I was in the hole with them and one of the biggest publishers in the world. In 2012, I became one of a dozen authors Penguin sued for failing to deliver manuscripts. Most were far more established than I was. The lawsuit sent waves of panic through the industry. Even though mine was for the most money, it came half a year later than the others, and so mercifully, I didn't make the papers. That was one humiliation I was spared. But I was still devastated. I felt like I'd failed everyone. I had one job to do, and I hadn't done it. Paul Krasner, the journalist who'd warned me that the story would, quote, take over my life, was more than right. It had chewed me up and spit me out. I didn't know how I could ever report on anything else now. Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Tom O'Neill, author of Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and The Secret History of the 60s, out now from Little Brown & Co. This episode originally aired on December 15, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.